Today we're going to continue in the book of Hebrews, chapter 9, Hebrews chapter 9, verses 11 through 14. And I do want to say, um, before I dive in there, that we have planned, or had planned for five or six weeks now, a special night or evening of worship on Saturday, March the 28th. Right now, that, that continues to be on the schedule. I don't know how long this quarantine, quarantine period is going to last in our society, but I'm hoping maybe no more than a couple weeks, and that that might be a great time, sort of a providential time that God had already fixed on our calendar for us to be back together and worshiping. So just kind of keep your eye on that, 6.30, Saturday, March the 28th. I'm, I'm hopeful that that will remain on the calendar and be a great time of worship for the entire family of faith. So having said that, you should be in Hebrews chapter 9, beginning in verse 11. Uh, I want to remind you a little bit of the context. Last week we saw how the earthly tabernacle of the Old Covenant was pointing us forward to the fact that we needed a heavenly remedy, that the Old Covenant wasn't satisfying our deepest need. It wasn't allowing us to be cleansed on the inside, and therefore we were disqualified from entering into the presence of God, drawing near to the clean or the holy presence of God. And the, the promise of Hebrews and the promise of the gospel is that access, that, that access to a clean and pure God has been granted through the blood of Jesus. That through Jesus we, we have a way into the presence of God. Now this week, early this week, I was trying to think of a way to illustrate, no kidding, how being unclean hinders our access to God and our fellowship with God's people. But by Wednesday, I was pretty convinced that Corona was my illustration. If, if people do not want to be near the possibility of a virus, then we should not be surprised that a perfectly holy God will not have fellowship with unclean sinners. And the good news is that while the old covenant could not make us clean, Jesus has come inaugurating a new covenant built on better promises with a better hope by which we can draw near to God. This is the message of hope. And it's the message of Hebrews. Hear now the word of God. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things to come, he entered through the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this creation, and not through the blood of goats and calves, but through his own blood, he entered the holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption." For if the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer sprinkling those who have been defiled sanctify for the cleansing of flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered Himself without blemish to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? I want you to see just two things from these verses this morning. To rely on and rest in the superior sacrifice of Jesus, which is what Hebrews is beginning to show us, starting in chapter 9, that, that Jesus' sacrifice is superior and stands over all the sacrifices of the Old Covenant. There's two things we need to do. We must understand that Jesus has obtained eternal redemption through His own blood, and secondly, we must have our conscience cleansed by Christ. 
First, we must understand Jesus has obtained eternal redemption through his own blood. In verses 11 and 12, the author of Hebrews again shows us that Jesus, as a high priest, is better than all the other high priests of the Old Covenant who ministered with the blood of bulls and goats. Specifically, Jesus is better because he's the only high priest who has obtained, do you see it in verse 12, eternal redemption. Not temporary redemption, not momentary redemption, not redemption that lasts long enough for me to go outside and sin again and need another sacrifice, but eternal redemption, perpetual, ongoing redemption. Redemption, although closely connected with the concept of salvation, is a bit more specific in what it means. It denotes the means by which God saves us, namely the payment of a ransom. The background for understanding redemption is found in the Old Testament. Redemption doesn't just show up in Hebrews. It's a concept that is discussed at length in the Old Testament. In Psalm chapter 78, verse 35, God is called Israel's Redeemer. The Lord powerfully rescued Israel, do you remember it, from slavery in Egypt by redeeming them. In the tenth plague, the firstborn sons of Israel were spared. They were redeemed in the miracle of the Passover leading to the exodus from Egypt. And as a result, down through the generations, God had a special claim upon the lives of the firstborn sons of Israel. From that time forward, the firstborn sons who were born to Israelite families had to be redeemed with the payment of money. You can see that in Exodus chapter 13, verses 13 through 15. Furthermore, uh, this concept of redemption is seen in other ways as well. If someone lost their inheritance, let's say they fell on hard times and they could no longer afford their property or sustain their family, they could sell themselves into slavery so that their needs could be provided for. But if a near kinsman, someone who knew them and was related to them, saw that they were in slavery and had the resources to buy them out of slavery, they could redeem not only their life, but also their property and give them a standing again by paying a price for their redemption. So throughout the Old Testament, redemption is associated with a powerful and often miraculous deliverance that comes by way of a costly payment. But the Old Testament sacrificial system, as we've seen, could not bring God's powerful deliverance from the slavery to sin. God redeemed them from Egypt. God redeemed them from Babylon. God redeemed slaves from their slavery. And yet, Israelites remained stuck in their sin. And sin brings death, and the death of animals could not bring the full and final forgiveness of sins. In Psalm 49, verse 7, we learn it's impossible for sinners to redeem sinners from sin, and that the redemption of a sinner's soul is costly. So the the Old Testament presents us with this conundrum. No sinner can redeem himself, but God promises he's going to somehow redeem Israel forever. In Romans 6.23, Paul summarizes the witness of the Old Testament about how much our sin costs us when he says the wages of sin is death. So our underlying problem is sin. It's not somebody else. It's not that I'm a victim of society. It's not social injustice. The underlying problem 
is sin. And we have no way to fix it. And yet, Psalm 130 verse 8 promises, The Lord will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. You see, the message of the gospel includes the wondrous truth that though we cannot cure our sin, the Lord has made a way to eternally redeem sinners by sending His only and begotten, or to eternally begotten Son to, to take our place. Let me say that again. He has sent His only and eternally begotten Son to take our place. No sinner could rescue sinners. So Jesus came to be sin for us and to pay the debt of our sin to God in our place. Jesus took our penalty. There is no salvation from God unless you recognize Jesus came to pay the price of your sin. Jesus took our penalty. Why? So we could have eternal redemption, to be paid in full and to be paid forever the price of our sins so that we could be reconciled to a holy God. This is why John the Baptist says of Jesus that he is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. The world to come is only going to have people whose lives have been washed clean by the blood of the Lamb. In her escape from Egypt, God spared the firstborn sons of Israel. Have you ever thought about this? Israel escapes through the sparing of her firstborn sons. Meanwhile, the firstborn sons of the Egyptians are taken because they don't have the sacrifice covering their firstborn sons, protecting their firstborn sons. And so, down through the generations, Israel is paying a price to spare the firstborn son. What's the big deal about the firstborn son? The identity of the family, the inheritance of the family, the standing of the family in the land is all wrapped up in the firstborn son. To have the next generation move forward, there's got to be a firstborn son on whom all the hopes of that family rest. You might say, in a sense, that the firstborn son represents the entire family. And down through the generations, God says, this is how you spare the firstborn son. This is how you redeem the firstborn son. This is how you redeem the firstborn son. But one day, there's going to be one son who's going to come out of the line of David, and he will not be spared. He will not be redeemed. Rather, he will be my son. He will be my heaven-sent son. He will be without sin. And rather than sparing him, I'm going to send him to die on an old rugged cross so that all of you might be redeemed. So that the whole world could be one family reconciled and restored and connected vitally to God the Father through the only Son who could make them one family, red and yellow, black and white, every tribe and tongue and language and nation through the blood of Jesus sent from heaven to redeem you. That's Jesus. To make a way of escape from sin, God sent His eternally and only begotten Son, the firstborn, not just of an Israelite family, but of all creation, Colossians 1 says, not to be served, but to serve and give His life as a ransom for many. In verses 1 through 10 of chapter 9, we have already read about the limitations of the old covenant. And if there's anything you've learned uh, as we've been working through the book of Hebrews, I love that little gospel word, but. Verse 11 begins, but when Christ appeared. Verses 1 through 10, we were hopeless. 
The old covenant condemned us as hopeless. It showed us that we couldn't be clean, that we couldn't have access to God. And then praise God for verse 11, but when Christ appeared, things changed. Jesus is the high priest. Uh, Do you see it in verse 11? Of the good things to come. Literally, the good things not just to come, but in the Greek language, it says of the good things that have come. Did you know in a world that is infected with corona, good things have come in Christ? They're already here. He's already been slain. He's already been crucified. He's already been raised. And in a day when people are tuck-tailing and running in fear and buying toilet paper for months and months and months, God help them, I don't know what it's going on, Jesus is available. Jesus has died. Jesus has been raised, and he will save. Good things have come because the high priest sits at the right hand of the Father where he intercedes for all who will confess their sin and trust in him. He's the high priest of forever forgiveness of sins and deliverance of death to life everlasting with God. Jesus is God keeping his promises. If you want to know the joy of being redeemed by God, to know your sins are forgiven and your debt of death is paid, you've got to come through Jesus. There's no other way, there's no other firstborn who can cure your sin. He is the firstborn over all creation, the eternally begotten Son of the Father. And He came not to offer the blood of goats and of calves, but His own blood. Verse 12. Have you ever... Do you know the word own when you write a possessive pronoun is unnecessary? It could have just said His blood. If it's His blood, it is His own blood. But he adds the word own to emphasize that Jesus didn't come and borrow somebody else's body and give their blood. He came into humanity, became flesh and blood, and gave his own blood, his pure blood, for the sons and daughters of men who were sinners to be reconciled to a holy God. A forever and a final redemption through the blood of Jesus. This means that Jesus, unlike the Old Covenant, is not pointing forward to some future answer. He is the answer. He is the remedy. Colossians 3, 14 and 15 says this, Jesus rescued us from the domain of darkness, transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son, in whom we have, there's that word, redemption, payment, the forgiveness of sins. Jesus did not come to pay it forward. He came to pay it all. He did not come to help those who help themselves. He came to rescue those who are helpless. See, a lot of people have a gospel that Jesus came and gave me a little head start, and now I'm going to do the rest of it on my own. That is not the gospel. The gospel is you were dead in your trespasses and sins. You were lifeless, you were hopeless, you were helpless, and until you see yourself in that way apart from God, you can't know God. But praise God, Jesus came and gave you everything you weren't. He did not come to improve your not-so-bad self. He came to die for your wretched sin. The only hope for sinners is that God would make a, a way to redeem them, to buy them back from their sin, and He did it through the blood of Jesus, a blood which is offered and accepted not in the earthly tabernacle, not in a temporary tabernacle, but do you see it in verse 11? But in the greater and more perfect tabernacle, verse 11. In a tabernacle not made with hands and not of this creation. And verse 12, 
in the holy place. And I love these little words, once for all. Jesus has obtained once for all redemption. That little word obtained means found. And if you could picture the old covenant as a quest to find the animal that would finally redeem, what you discover is there's no animal that could do it. You just keep looking, you keep looking, you could keep looking. But Jesus has found, He has discovered, He has obtained the redemption that the old covenant showed us we so desperately needed. So this morning, if your sins still accuse you, if you're still dead in your trespasses and sin, if you don't know connectivity with the Father who made the whole world, run to Jesus and find eternal redemption. The perfect life of Jesus given for sinners means a way has been opened to know and enjoy the forever presence of God because the offering has been accepted by God once for all. This morning, if you don't know the good things of God's redemption, forgiveness of sin, a clean heart, if you don't know those things that come through faith in Jesus, let today be the day. Let Corona Sunday be the day that you get cleansed in the place that matters most. Secondly, we've got to have our consciences cleansed by Christ. Now that's each and every one of us. Each and every one of us will reckon with God on the day of judgment. And we will either stand before Him clean or unclean. And only those who are clean will be raised to live and dwell with Him in the new heavens and the new earth forever. Others will be raised to eternal destruction. In verses 13 and 14, the author of Hebrews argues from what's called the lesser to the greater. If this little thing over here accomplished something, how much more is this big old thing over here going to accomplish something? And he basically says this, if the old covenant accomplished ritual purity purity through the blood of animals, then how much more do you suppose Jesus can get done in your life with his blood? If you think the blood of a goat could do something, how much more will the blood of the firstborn overall creation do in your life? Under the old covenant, the ceremonial washings and the special garments and the blood sacrifices were required to enter into God's presence for just a moment. By one person, once a year. In verse 13, the cleansing of the flesh refers to the outward purity that was required for the tabernacle to function. But as we see back in verse 9, the old covenant was not capable of giving worshipers a clean or a complete or a perfect conscience. It could not give the deep internal cleansing from sin that we need to have fellowship with God. It could only give that ritual purity, and it demonstrated that we needed a better sacrifice. The Old Covenant was about as effective as putting hand sanitizer on your hands after you had already contracted the virus. It doesn't matter how many times you wash your hands or how many times you sanitize once the virus is on the inside and growing. And that's like sin. Once sin is on the inside, it begins to metastasize and overtake your life. And the only way that you can be made clean is not by putting the blood of goats and calves on the outside of your body. You need someone to come on in the inside and kill that virus at the root and change you at your core. 
That person is Jesus. The author asks if the old covenant resulted in outward purity. Verse 14. Now, we're, we're few in number this morning, but if, if we had both services together and we had a full house, I just want you to know that verse 14 makes me excited. Because it says, how much more will the blood of Christ accomplish in your life? Isn't that a great question? That's a great way of thinking about it. It's so simple. I love that question. If you, if you think a burger from Wendy's is good, how much more will you enjoy one from Five Guys? If you think fries from Burger King are remotely edible, how much more will you like waffle fries from Chick-fil-A? If you think a box fan in the middle of summer and when it's 99 degrees outside in Blacksburg at Virginia Tech, how much more will the dorms, which now all have central air, cool your body? If you think UVA, no, I'm just kidding. <clears throat> how much more? How much more? If you think the blood of Bulls and goats and the ashes of heifers did something. And you want to run back to that system of covering your sin. How much more ought you consider Jesus who didn't come to just cover your sin. He came to cure you of it and cleanse you from the inside out. And give you new affections and new desires and new passions. And a new, whole new way of seeing the world. How much more will the blood of Jesus do in your life? Jesus is the remedy. He is the cure. After all. It's the blood, not of an animal, but of a human being, and not just any human being. It's the blood of the Messiah, the King of Israel, and the King of the entire world. And what he is showing us in this text is the blood, meaning the death of Jesus, doesn't just get down to the surface level. It gets down into our inner being through the regenerating power of the Holy Spirit of God who miraculously applies the blood of Jesus to your heart. He takes the death of Jesus and he says, Chris should have died, Daniel should have died, Don should have died, Martha should have died, Paul should have died, but they don't have to die because Jesus died for them. And if they'll surrender their life to Jesus, then in some way that I can't fully comprehend, the Spirit of God says, Daniel is already dead in Jesus. His price has already been paid in Jesus. And on the third day, Christ was raised from the dead, which is why we baptize the way we do. It's why we bury under the water, and it's why we raise up, because on the third day, Christ was raised in the Holy Spirit of God. doesn't just say, Jesus died for me. He now lives for me, and until I die and am raised again, He lives in me and gives me a supernatural power to do the things that God would have me to do in a world that wants me to do everything that would violate His holy law. The Spirit of God does that through the blood of Jesus. If you've ever wondered where the Holy Spirit is called God, it's right here in these verses. He's called the eternal spirit. There's only one who's eternal and he is God. The spirit is eternal, which means the Holy Spirit is God. In fact, in verse 14, we see every person of the Trinity at work. You notice that? Jesus is the one who offers himself, the Son of God offers himself to the Father. 
The Spirit is the means by which the offering is presented to God. Not presented on earth, but in the heavenly presence of God. And the Father is the one who accepts the offering. We have right here in verse 14 a triune God at work to save you. If you deny the Trinity, then you deny the Gospel. Jesus offers Himself to God the Father through the eternal Spirit. The Spirit is the one who strengthened Jesus to go all the way to the cross and offer Himself in obedience and in accordance with the Father's plan. And praise God, Jesus is an unblemished and blameless sacrifice. The animals that were sacrificed in the tabernacle had to be physically unblemished, but Jesus was morally pure. He was blameless. He offered to God what is required of humanity, a life of perfect devotion to God alone, lived for the glory of God alone. The blood of an unblemished animal could never pay for our sins. Only the blood of Jesus, the unblemished Savior, only the sacrifice of Jesus, therefore, can cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Do you see that in verse 14? In Jeremiah Chapter 33, verse 8, the Lord promises, I will cleanse them from all their iniquity by which they have sinned against me, and I will pardon all their iniquities by which they have sinned against me and by which they have transgressed against me. It is through the death of Jesus, the offering of his life for us, that we are cleansed from our works which deserve death and we, by which we are also cleansed from the deadness of trying to work our way to God. Let me say that again. We, are, we can be cleansed through the blood of Jesus from works in two different ways. You notice it says works from dead works. Well, what does it mean, dead works? Well, it, it, it means two different things. There are works that lead to death. Our sinful works lead to death. But then there's also this idea that human beings have, well, if I could just be good enough to cover up the sin I did in my past, that somehow I could be good with God. And that doesn't work either. Jesus cures us from both. In my experience, both as a person and as a pastor, I am fully aware of the temptation to try and soothe my conscience with my own good deeds, rather than desperation for Jesus who had to die in my place. Some here today might know Christ, but you don't feel very clean because you're neglecting the opportunity to humbly present yourself to Jesus daily as your only remedy and your only hope for reconciliation to God. Rather than confessing your sin, you're in a pattern of trying to cover them up because you're more interested in appearances rather than what Christ has done in your place. But you know the futility of this exercise. You know that all the good works that you could ever muster will not cover up even one little sin and your conscience is not being deceived by your futile effort because it can only be cleansed through the redeeming life and death of Jesus. We do not work, church, to earn God's favor. We work because we have God's favor through the cleansing and bloody death of Jesus in our place. One writer said it like this, Redeemed people, that's saved people, serve God and find fulfillment and joy in doing the very things that we did out of obligation and frantic determination to try and justify ourselves before Christ appeared. 
The completed work of Jesus rescues us from this foolish attempt and saves us from dead works. Who are you hoping in this morning? Are you hoping in what you can do or in what Christ has done? It is the death of Jesus which declares for all time that unless God does something for us and in us to change us, we could never be accepted by God. But praise God, there was no other way. We know this because Jesus prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane. Father, if there's one other way, if there's anything else that could be done to save these people, then let's go with plan B. But if it's your will, then let your will be done. It was the will of the Father to crush the Son so that your ransom could be paid in full and you could be delivered into the presence of God so that we can stop the ceaseless striving of trying to hide our sins and cure our own unclean consciences and instead repent and receive God's mercy through the blood of Jesus. This morning, if you need to be cleansed at your core, Stop hiding, stop striving, stop pretending, and let Corona Sunday be the day that you run to Jesus and know the glorious hope of truly being clean. Would you pray with me? God in heaven, thank you for the truth of Hebrews chapter 9. Thank you for the hope of life everlasting in the presence of God because of redemption that lasts forever through the blood of Jesus. God, if there's anyone here that wants to join a church that's on mission to proclaim the gospel in places like Puerto Rico and places across the street like Burlington Elementary School and God, to the ends of the earth, we we would welcome them today to join with us in this fellowship that is on mission for you. God, if there's any here today that says, you know what, I, I'm, I'm terrified of this virus because I don't, I don't know that I belong to Christ. God, would today be the day that the fear of death is removed through the blood of Jesus? I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.